Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. Professor Nicholas Opie, welcome to The Mentor. Uh, thanks for having me. How are you going? All right. Yeah, very well. Very well. Half uh, from Melbourne. I am. Yes. Um, you're the co-founder, or yeah, one of the co-founders, of course, and CTO of a very well-known science-based company called Synchron. Uh, you're based here in Australia and the US, correct? That's right. Yep. So I'd like to know a little bit about yourself. What's your background? Uh, I love making things. I've always wanted to make or be involved in making body parts. Uh, I think I got that from watching Inspector Gadget and uh, you know, Astro Boy as a kid. And that sort of took me through the the uni days uh, when I did electrical engineering and science. There wasn't a biomedical engineering at the time. Um, so I'd engineering because I wanted to make things and then science because I wanted to know how things worked. And fortuitously for me, uh, you know, we live in a time where I can now put them together and start making medical devices designed for people. Which part of engineering now we're talking about? Uh, electrical engineering. Electrical engineering, yeah. which used to electrical when I'm when I was uni, electrical engineers used to end up being get involved in computers and start pr- doing coding and stuff like that. I had a couple of tech companies that's all we employed electrical engineers to do the coding, mm. build software. It's probably a better way of putting it. Were you one of those typical people like who ended up doing you know getting involved in software, etc.? No, I was one of those strange ones that did electrical engineering, but was. I had a bigger passion for mechanical engineering. I liked the gears and the cogs and the the moving parts. Uh, But electrical engineering uh, marries better with physiology and the science part I was doing of how cells work, how the brain works, uh, the electrical parts of that. So, In terms of electrical signals? In terms of electrical signals. So I didn't know it at the time, but what I was learning in physiology – uh, and electrical engineering was how to how to record brain activity, how to record the electricity of the brain and understand it. So I think I chose the right thing, even though uh, I'm not a conventional sort of coder like like a lot of the other chemists you might see. And and biomedical engineering is a relatively speaking new field. I mean, it was somebody probably said, uh, let's get the engineers to somehow collaborate with the medical or the the health services, or at least the medical people particularly the biologists, and maybe what we can do is we can uh, build something really in- interesting out of this and we're, let's call it biomedical engineering. Is that sort of, I think is, so. That's the genesis of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I think it started a lot with um, artificial uh, limbs and prosthetics for, for legs and originally some of the doctors might have made them with the biologists and then they're like, you know what, let's get the engineers to, to figure this one out. To make, make sure can, it works. To make sure it works. Yeah. Let's get them to build them. Yeah. And and, can- and that, that's very interesting, especially mechanical engineers. So I guess I wanted to know how it, you – and your co-partner, uh, co-founder, 
decided to establish Synchron and what was the objective behind Synchron? Like we're going beyond prosthetics now, we're going to some other territory. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, so let me go into the, the PhD and this is sort of where it, where some of that decision for me came. Um, so I was working on developing a, a bionic eye uh, to help people with profound vision loss. Yeah, yep, and a little bit before that. And so was able to see the process from an academic point of view of designing the technology, building it, testing it, uh, you know, on a bench and then testing it in preclinical trials and then finally getting it to a clinical trial and, and seeing it being used in patients to try and help them uh, to see again. Once that was done, the and and granted, I was a PhD student, so I didn't have the inside or access to everything. But but from my perspective, it didn't look like there was a very clear path for how that would translate into a product that people could how they could use it. It was working really well on the on the people that were implanted, but how do we get it to the next group? They did a lot of the research and the academic things, and they did the science. Yep. Uh, when then it was time to say, okay, well, let's turn this into a product that can be commercialized. Right. Uh, it, it didn't appear from from my vantage point that that there was a a pathway to do that, a, a well known pathway. And there's a lot of differences between doing the academic research, which is obviously crucial, to then saying, okay, well, what do we do about regulations and reimbursement and quality control and product and and all of that sort of thing that needs to to go into an to having getting an approval so it can be on the shelf so someone can use it. Um, so when I met Tom, I think one of the things we were very well aligned with on on day one was, um, yes, this is amazing technology, it's exciting. You know, we can interface with the brain in a way that's never been done before. Do we know it's going to work? No, but we're pretty confident because you know there's there's some evidence to to say that that the brain can be recorded from in in this way. But we're also very clear that if we're going to do this, it has to be done so it gets to the people that need it. We have to have a company that that is incorporated that. You know, it runs along the side and maybe doesn't do much for the first few years while we're doing the the critical research. But there will be a time where that becomes really valuable because that's how we'll get the the funding. That's how we'll get the the product. That's how we'll we'll be able to actually make a difference with the technology and and make sure it doesn't just sort of gather dust on a uni shelf. How can we record brain activity from people with paralysis? How can we help people who, because of stroke, spinal cord injury, motor neuron disease? Um, amputations or accidents that cause loss of limb. How can we get them to control their environment again, whether it's communication or uh, controlling a wheelchair or controlling an exoskeleton or prosthetic limb? Without touching How do we, it. Without touching it. How Too can thought. we connect their brain back up to mechanical devices because they've lost the ability to, to control them? And so with the interesting thing with a lot of these, these patients, even though they have very different... Um, you know, medical conditions or ideologies, the brain is still functioning in the same way. It's just the connection between the brain and the limb that is is broken or damaged or lost. Um, but the results are the same. They can still think, but they can't move. And so even though that their you know, stroke's quite different to spinal cord injury, quite different to MND, the, the end result's the same. And so we wanted to come up with a way that we could take the information from the brain that they're generating naturally anyway and put that into a, a prosthetic device or or computer or digitize it somehow and allow them to control their world again. What is it you look at in the brain? Is it the brain waves, blood flow? You're talking about electrical activity. You're talking about uh, brain waves, which is electrical activity. What, what, yeah, what are you guys uh, looking at? Electrical activity. There was some technology that already existed. There, there were people that had shown that if you remove the skull and you put electrodes into the brain, that you can record activity uh, related to volitional movement. So when someone wants to do something, you can record this. 
The problem is there was no system that people could take home. You can't, you know, these systems, you know, they're, they're invasive. They, they have plugs and ports coming out of their skulls. They can't use them outside of a, you know. Matrix a, stuff. A, a theater, a lab. Um, and so we're like, well, we want to do this in a way that people can take it home and use it. Um, and, and so, yes, we're using electrical activity, but the way we get there is by, by using blood vessels to, to access the brain. Um, there's a part of the brain called the, the motor cortex. It's very well mapped. There's regions for the hands and the arms and the, uh, the fingers and legs and so forth. Um, and so we know that if we put a device over the motor cortex and let's say the arm region and ask them to move their arm, then we'll be able to uh, extract that information and use it to control something. And I think the best way to, to think about this, um, I'm from Victoria, so I'll, I'll go with an AFL explanation, but, you know, football is football. Uh, at the start of a game, you know, if you're sitting in the crowd and if, if you think of everyone in the crowd as a, as a brain cell or a neuron, there's a lot of hum, there's a lot of background noise, everyone's talking, no one's saying the same thing, but, you know, there's just a lot of activity. When someone kicks a goal, uh, let's say it's the Tigers because they're, they're the best team, um, not this year, but uh, <laughs> the one I go for, uh, then there's a part of the the ground, um, you know, probably the, the Punt Road cheer squad, they will all erupt and, and they will all do the same thing at the same time. And it's similar to the brain. When you ask someone to perform a movement, a part of their brain, which is all sitting in this baseline you know, noise state, suddenly becomes activated and suddenly there's this spike of electricity uh, if you will, that you can record and and infer that, oh, you know, we asked them to move their arm. They did and there was this big spike of activity. That means they wanted to move their arm so we can use that to control an arm or a, a mouse press or, or, or whatever the digital thing you wanted. We record electrical activity. But how much of this is reliant upon like sensor technology? I think the sensor technology itself is really about how to safely interface with the brain. Um the, what you use to pick up the, the neural activity is sort of platinum electrodes. People will use them for all sorts of medical applications, so there's nothing too special about that. It's the method of how do you get those, those electrodes or sensors into the right part of the brain? How can you make the device of suitable shape and size so they can be there safely? And then on the other end, how can you get these, these trains of electricity from these different regions and understand and interpret what they mean to to have some useful outcome like controlling a computer. Do you actually like cut a hole in the head or take nope. the top of the head off? I mean, how no, do you get in the no, brain? We don't do that. That's how, the uh, that's how other groups <laughs> Yeah, that's how other groups do it. And uh, look, it's they've got some very good evidence to say that it, that that method works. The problem is it's not safe. You do have to remove the skull. Yeah. Um you put electrodes directly into the delicate brain tissue and like having a splinter in your finger, the brain doesn't like having metal spikes in it. Um, yeah. who would have thought? Uh, so we've come up with a way that's taken advantage of some of the work that's been done in the cardiac space where you use blood vessels as you know, the naturally occurring pathway to get around the body. And indeed, we can just use them to get up to the brain. There's a very big vessel um, called the superior sagittal sinus, which is right in the middle of the, of the, um, the brain between the hemispheres, right over the top of the motor cortex. And so the same way that um, people put stents in for cardiac you know, blood clots and things yep. like that or to remove clots from people with stroke, um, we can use the same pathway to get to the brain. Uh, the other benefit of this is there are a huge number of hospitals, and this is increasing, that have the capabilities to perform um, blood clot removal for people with stroke. So we don't have to have any new theatres. We don't need to teach the surgeons any new procedures. The rooms and theatres already exist. Um, 
we can just repurpose them for this application. So when it comes to, to scaling the technology, the, you know, the infrastructure already exists for, for this to, to go forward. Um, we don't need you know, specialist neurosurgeons to, to perform delicate procedures. Um, we, we just need the interventional neuroradiologists, what they're called, um, the guys that do the, the stenting and blood clot work that, that exist. I presume they do it. With, with an MRI machine or something like that, watching where it's going. Yeah, they've got a CT scan, so CT they've scan, got a okay. they've got an X ray machine, yeah. and you can push contrast through. So you push a dye through the blood vessels, and when you take X ray of the dye, uh, it'll show you where the vessels go. Uh, normally, they use it to figure out, you know, if there's a, a bleed in your brain, where where's the dye going? You can see where the bleed is occurring, or or if there's a clot, where's the blood? Where's the dye not going to? Uh, and in the same way, they, they push the die through, and then we can say, "Oh, there's the, you know, there's the motor cortex right there. Just put the device up there, and then there's just a very clear path that's on the screen for them to follow as they're as they're doing the procedure." The device being the sensor. The device being the the sensor, yes. And, so, and what what is that again? Platinum. Uh, there's so the the sensors themselves are just platinum, um, but we've embed the platinum inside a um, a nitinol self-expanding uh, scaffold, if you will. Uh, what this means is that we can insert the device through a very small one millimeter diameter catheter while we're doing the procedure to get to the motor cortex, and then when we're there, we remove the catheter, and the device can expand to you know six seven millimeters to uh, push the electrodes against the vessel wall and make sure that the blood vessel itself remains open and patent, and blood can keep through flowing through it. So it's it's measuring the blood flow. No, so it's measuring the brain activity through the blood vessel wall. So. The brain doesn't even know we're there. We're, we're invisible uh, and so we don't get the same sort of rejection that you would from the other devices. Uh, and in fact, because we're in the blood vessel, the blood vessel tries to reject it so we get pushed closer to the, um, the well, brain, which, wanna, yeah. which, is, which anchors it and is where we want to be. How does the patient make use of that? Yeah. So the information comes wirelessly out of, out of the body uh, into what we call a, a signal control unit, a signal processing unit essentially. And that is the piece of the, the technology that interprets the brain activity and we can put algorithms and software on there that says, you know, this is when they're trying to do something. This isn't. That then connects to a, uh, a computer system and we've set up a, a software to help uh, patients use it and on that there are many different functions. So if someone wants to uh, surf the net, they can, you know, they can use this and by performing a mouse click with their with their brain, uh, they can surf the web. They can uh, use word processing applications or you know, email or um, or phone messaging to, to send messages and communicate with other people. Um, we've we've hooked some of them up so they can control their smart homes and turn on lights and turn on TVs and and things like that. So the information that comes out is interpreted. That goes into our system that then uh, allows them to control a range of different technologies, if you will. Let's say, you know, I'm so unfortunate enough to have this mm -hmm. A condition, could be MND, and um, you've hooked me up, um, as, as you described. I'd like to turn on the uh, smart electrical system, uh, smart light system in the house. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking about that. How does that convert the, into the doing something? Yeah, yeah. This is something we continually work on. And I was doing this the other day and it was it's still magical every time I see it. So I was over at one of the patient's houses. Uh, he he can't speak. He can't move his arms. Um, but he's sitting there in front of a computer. Uh, and for him, 
he doesn't have to, but he, he can use eye tracking. And so we want to allow patients to use technology that already exists if it enhances their, their ability to, in this case, communicate. So, As in Stephen Hawking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So for him, he while he still can use eye tracking, we'll, we'll get him to use that. And so he can navigate his eyes around the screen and he might look at letter uh, H and he'll type that and then he'll start typing hello. And I can sit there on my phone um, typing back to him and we can have a pretty normal conversation where I message him and he reads a text conversation. A text conversation, yep. exactly. So um, we don't need the eye tracking. We've come up with, with software that, that doesn't need it. But essentially by measuring the activity of his brain, we can allow him to do a, a mouse click just by by thinking about it. Why do you think you should go to further still to your tech? I mean, eye tracking technology is great and I think there's a lot of people that can have huge benefit from it. The problem with it is a lot of patients um, have reported telling us that they get really tired by using it. You have to stare at a letter for you know, a couple of seconds for it to perform a click. Before it recognises. Before it recognises that that's what you want and then uh, and so that can be quite slow to, to type. Um there are a lot of patients that also can't use it because they can't focus properly. Uh, and and one of the other ones is they it needs someone to set it up. You need to you know to use eye tracking. It has to register where your eyes are and match it up. Um, so if we can get rid of eye tracking completely, and that's you know if they can use eye tracking well, great. You yeah. know that that you know it works. If if they can't, then you know it'd be really good to to use a system that doesn't require eye tracking where they can still do all the same functions. I think what will happen though is eye tracking only really has one mouse click. You can only do one button with it by staring at a particular letter and then that goes. With us, uh, you know, the, the devices we put in had 16 sensors, 16 electrodes. So we, you know, have the potential to do many, many more switches. We could, uh, you know, in an ideal case, you know, 10 switches, one for each finger and someone can play the piano. Um, wow. That's, that's not what we're doing and certainly for these patients – they really wanted to have something that was really easy, but also really reliable. Uh, you know, they they've got MND. They don't have um, you know huge amounts of time left. So for them, just being able to get something quickly, easily reliable that they could use to you know talk to their carers or loved ones um, and entertain themselves through you know watching videos or, or whatever surfing the web um, is is what they wanted. Or just Where to we're talk. Now, yeah. Yeah, uh, I think it will come a stage where there are people with spinal cord injury, stroke, for example, who might have normal life expectancies, and they might be, you know, more enthusiastic about getting the most number of switches out so they can control the most number of uh, motors, which could be, you know, like a, a prosthetic hand or something. But uh, we'll see. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. If I could just ask you before we go on, Mm -hmm. Where do you sort of rank against Neuralink? Are uh, you guys sort of competing with them a bit? I, I think there's a place for more than one player in this space. I think they're – Your device is different though, do you? Our device is different. Um, uh, I will say that we have got FDA approval and have been doing human trials. Um, they – and no other technology has. So in terms of how far along to commercial product, we're, we're a lot further. Um, but they're different. I mean, we're, we're aiming to get the most value f- from a low number of, um, call it electrodes or sensors to provide the most benefit to people with, with disability or, or paralysis or other conditions. I think for, for him, and obviously I, uh, I'm just taking this from the, the media reports and what have you, I've heard him it being seems, Elon Musk, him being Elon Musk, uh, seems to want to have as many electrodes as he can to symbiotically join humans and machines and I think they're quite uh, different goals. Yeah, it's, it's funny because um, I saw him having a crack at um, OpenAI and ChatGPT and all that other stuff more recently and, and actually claiming that he without his $50 million that he invested in it, there, wouldn't be no, and there would not be any OpenAI and he was sort of having a go at uh, Larry Page. Hmm. Um, yet Neuralink seems to be doing – something more invasive or something more scary than that. Like as you just said, they're trying to link everything up mm-hmm. and it's nearly like he's uh, trying to take something out of our out of a brain or, or create a, nearly a fake brain Yeah, but but in a mechanical sense. Um, I mean I don't want you to bag him but um, – <laughs> No, no, I've got nothing, can, can, nothing can, bad can, to say can, about him. Can, can sure, you yeah. sort of just explain where all this stuff's going? Like, uh, you know – what are the scenarios we might be seeing ourselves in five years from? Let's just let's just take away from the natural health benefits because I want to come back to that. Yeah, especially M and D. Um, but like, what, what are the scary things that you think could come out of all these great um, I don't discoveries? Think yeah, I don't think there's too much that's scary. I mean, I think there is a time, and where I'm seeing people when I when I give lectures who already want to have a device that can be implanted to control their smart home. With all medical products, once they're proven safe enough, uh, if there's enough community interest, it seems that they go that way. If you look at sort of plastic surgery, started off as, uh, you know, burns victims and, and people who were, who were injured, uh, it's sort of got a life of its own now. And I think the, the, the majority is probably not for the, the medical purpose that it was once designed for. Um, so I think I think there's, you know, there's a lot of people who want to interface with computers. They, they want to be able to have the ability to, um, enhance their memory or cognition. Um, I mean, it'd be great if you could remember names. I, I'm not very good at that, but is there a way that I could remember everyone I've met? Uh, is, do I need to link myself up to a computer to do that? I'm, I'm not sure. Just link um, yourself to your mobile phone with yeah, your co- contacts. contacts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, possibly. Um, and so I think there's – the amazing thing is that we don't really know where it's going to go. I think there's some some really fantastic possibilities, both from the medical space and from just sort of consumer goods, if it's done properly. Um, and and who knows where it's going to go? But it probably it's as difficult. an ethically, yeah, yeah, and it's, and it's it's difficult though. I think people underestimate how hard it is to get signals out and interpret them, let alone put signals back in that that mean anything to the brain. Um, you know, there's a lot of 
scare about things that can be done poorly, but oh, we're, you know, there's so much upside, and it's just yeah, underestimated how difficult the problem is that we're that we're trying to tackle, and the the movies you see are so far from reality today that. Um, I often laugh at some of the the suggestions on what we can do with it. Well, quantum computing assisted at some stage when it's when quantum computing computing actually becomes, mm. you know, not just a dream, something beyond a dream. You know, the actual real we're using it. Let's say it's twenty years time. Do you think it'll assist in what you're doing? Uh, I think a lot of the technologies that are coming out will be able to assist in one way or other uh, with implants, particularly those that interface with the brain. I mean, we need material science, we need AI, we need technology, we need, you know, smaller devices and more bandwidth and, and all, almost all technologies for one way or other might be able to, to play a part in, in making what this field is doing a little bit better and let it go a little bit further. Um, and we've, we've seen already, so just in terms of putting information back in, there are some devices that for people who have uh, Parkinson's where they have tremors, you can put an electrode into the brain, you can pass some electrical current through there and their tremor will stop. And this is sort of amazing technologies that come out. We don't really know why. I know uh, someone who had it. But but these, oh, do you? Yeah, did yeah. It, did it well, he's passed away, but yeah. he's 80 something. But he had, he, he, it did, yeah. his tremor stopped. Yeah, I mean, and then that's like, it's pretty simple that we're just putting some current in with huge benefits, right? But the idea that we'll be able to put in some specific amount of current or waveform or whatever that will make someone think something that they otherwise wouldn't is uh, that's you know I'd love to be there but that's so far down the track at the moment we're just you know we're just scratching the surface on on interfacing I mean I have a personal interest in motor neuron disease because my mother had it and I remember it was only she was 86 when she got on I remember as you know with these things when you're older it happens pretty quickly that she passed away pretty quickly but I, I do recall distinctly as you say um maybe one month before she passed away like she knew exactly what was going on she was quite a bright person and um uh, her her eyes would so she could see everything, but she got to a point where she couldn't write any more notes. She lost the speech first, but then she couldn't write anything. She had ALS, and um, so she couldn't write stuff. She started writing things, and if somehow someone had got to her, if the technology was around, if someone had got to her, say when she first got diagnosed, at which point she could speak perfectly, she could do everything. You could probably train something like you're you're doing, train something up to be able to take over when the speech mm-hmm. and, and her hands stop moving. But for people who don't know, motor neuron disease or at least her one, ALS, she lost use of everything. Um, but, yeah. but mostly stayed with the speech first, sense of smell, then her hands. That, that was next. She could still walk a bit, but her hands. And um, so which means she couldn't communicate. And, and I think at the last part of your, the last six months of your life, if you've got that dreadful disease, communications, as you say, is you want to talk to your carer, you want to talk to your doctor, you want to talk to your husband, your kids, whatever, grandkids, um, and you probably want to, there's things you probably want to tell them um, and also express yeah. your frustration. I imagine so. And um, Is that what sort of pushes you to get this stuff done? It is. It is. Uh, I see the – so it's interesting. So I always thought I was making it for the person that had the, the condition, whatever that might be. Uh, and the first patient, um, Graham, that we, we implanted uh, – yeah, he used to use it. He used to like it. Um, but what was really valuable was his his wife and carer, Nancy, using, when he was starting off with this disease and when it got to the point where he yeah, he couldn't talk and he couldn't couldn't move, she felt she had to need to 
uh, be around him all the time to hear what he's saying if he needed some water or to go to the bathroom or, or whatever it might be. But by putting this device in and giving him access to a phone and messaging applications, she now had the independence. She could go down the street. She could go yeah. into the garden. Um, and I think it was really surprising to and, and amazing to see that we probably gave her and the family more independence than, mm. than him perhaps. They, that, that, they, were, they were able to do things. No, which, you're, you're right, Nick. Which it, I didn't expect to see that benefit. Because my early mm. dad, um, he lost so much weight looking after mum during that period. Yeah, and imagine. He's he since put on weight. But it was just it's hard, isn't const- it? constantly yeah. that you have to feed them, yep. you have to change them, you have mm-hmm. to shower them, you have to do everything. And uh, they never have sort of t- they're too scared. Dad was old, too scared to go out of the house because he worried something was going to happen. Yeah. And uh, – but if somehow she could communicate to him or he communi- could communicate back to her, say, everything all right, and she could say, everything's okay. So that's what you're saying. It's, it's, it's not only for the person who's yeah. afflicted with a disease. It's also good for the carer and the family and the, the broader group. I mean, all she had was a, a thing around her neck, which is a some sort of like emergency a emergency button, button that, where yeah. if you fall, it, it registered <clears throat> somehow at a yeah. sensor and it worked out if you're going to fall or if you fell and it sent an emergency um, uh, thing to you but like communications like mm. one of the great things about humans is that our biggest strength is we communicate that's the big deal for us yeah we talk to each other and uh you know we through language we know what we how our people are feeling and what they're doing what they're thinking and i think um what synchron is doing if it can if you can get get to those stages with what you're doing that's like for me is absolutely brilliant where is synchron at now like so how many people you got working for you and what's your campus look like in the US, et cetera. Can you go through that? Yeah, sure. So um, so we've had a, a bit of a growth spurt recently. Um, we now have uh, a couple of offices. We've got a, um, a R&D lab in, in Melbourne where, where it all sort of began that's still working on uh, next generation technologies. Um, like I was saying, we can go into the blood vessels. We can go to the brain through blood vessels. There are a lot of other regions we can get to. Other other neurological conditions we can, we can help with the technology we've got. Uh, there are. Let's see what what comes out of that. But but certainly the the New York office, which is now sort of uh, you know fifty or so people, is now focused on. Okay, well we've we've done a first in human trial in Australia. We you know this was four patients with MND that were implanted and followed up for a couple of years. There was no device related adverse events, is the sort of the medical phrase for it. Um, so nothing went wrong, and they could all use the technology to you know online shopping and banking and perform what's called instrumental activities of daily living, which is essentially stuff that you and I take for granted that, that can be really difficult if you have one form of disease or, or paralysis or uh, or disability. Uh, so the, the US folks, they're, they're now continuing with that and continuing doing um, more human trials. So we've got, uh, I think, five uh, participants implanted over there. Um, while we're doing the you know, the non-academic things that I spoke about briefly before, the you know, reimbursement regulations, how can we you know, manufacture the device in quality controlled environments the same every time under under strict guidelines? How can we make sure that the clinical trials and the hospitals and the, the surgeons and doctors are all set up and ready to go? Uh, so the next step for us is once we've done these human, these this initial early feasibility trial, um, we can then expand that to what's called a pivotal trial, which is a larger number of people. And once that's successfully completed, um, that's when the, the FDA will... Uh, will give you approval to uh, post-market approval. So they will say, okay, you, you've shown your device is safe. You've shown your device works. 
the reimbursement guys are like, yes, you know, this gives enough value to the community that we're willing to pay for it or or cover it or or help with costs. Uh, go for it. You can now start selling the device to clinicians. To, to those to the clinicians or you know to those that need it. So, how do you fund all this? Uh, we were very lucky in the early days by getting. Um, government funding both from Australia and, and from the US. To, Is it an to NHMRC grant? NHMRC grant. Um, the National Health and Medical Research Council grants, they come in various different forms. There are project grants for universities. There's investigator grants for individuals. There are other grants for, for sort of joint companies and universities. Uh, I'd love to say that they were really easy to get. Uh, I think they're getting more and more difficult. And you know, good luck to anyone who's listening to this that's writing one or has written one or is waiting on results. Exactly. So yeah, good luck to you. Uh, you know, you're not, you're never going to get all of them, but just keep trying for for those listening. Um, Some try year after year after year. They do, they do. So yeah, it's hard. And I think the the issue that we found when we were raising capital at the start was, firstly, we were very lucky at getting these grants, and we, we probably wouldn't be where we were if that if that wasn't the case. Um, so we're able to get some money to do proof of concept work, show that the the idea that had never been done before had some merit to it, that we could get to the brain by vessels, that we could record activity. Uh, after that, that's when you know, that's where you sort of need the private investment. So you, you've done a lot of the research, and then a lot of the testing that needs to be done to get approval to implant in a human is well, it's a little bit boring um, in terms of the scientific community. I mean, is it? Because uh, there's, there's things like, oh, I have to get a wire and bend it 10 million times and show that it doesn't break. I mean, you can't publish that. No one really cares. But that's critical for the FDA or for the regulation regulatory body to show that it's safe. Yep. And so there's sort of – that's where the – you know, there's a fork in the path where the interesting science um, is no longer the science or that's needed to, to get into humans. You have to – one of the tests was get a device, put it on a shelf for a year, see if it works afterwards. I mean, that's – yeah. That's not exciting or interesting from from an academic perspective, but it's crucial from a sort of commercial and, and industrial perspective. So, uh, and that's where you start needing to get the money for. Because if you ask NHMRC, can I have some money to bend a wire? They're not. They're probably not going to uh, give it to you. Um, but some of the investors who see, oh yeah, that's that's what you need to do to get into humans to meet this inflection point to then, you know, turn it into a product. Um, they, they can see that, and they're they're more likely to to, to help fund that sort of activity. Where are you at in terms of the development of understanding the life of one of these things? Because you've only been doing it a little while. I mean, you haven't had a patient who's yeah, had it there for 20, 30 years. Uh, there, we've, we do have 10 years of cumulative use, right, okay. so not in one patient but yep. across all the patients. So there's 10 years of data that we've been able to uh, to use to yeah help, help the next patient, help with the algorithms yep. and what have you. But I think the longest we've had is you know a little bit over two years. So still a long time, but you're right, that's not a – that's not a lifetime, and so you know that's what we want to try and well, get. What to. do they ask you about that? Do they? Do they it's just when you? I don't even know how the yeah, FDA you, thing you're works. You're meant but, to test for a lifetime, yeah. which is um, considered depending on the component and the part about ten years. So if you're if you have a uh, implantable pulse generator, a pacemaker style thing in your chest, batteries you might need to change in ten years. So I think there's sort of an understanding where you know, it needs to last ten years if if you need to replace a part. Uh, otherwise, it should be able to last for the life of the patient. Yeah, I guess there's a trade-off at the end of the day too. I mean, they're going to say, well, the, the benefits are too great to get too sort of serious about whether or not this thing is going to last 30, 40 years. Uh, you'd think so, but no, they still want to see it. So, do they? Yep, and that's fine. We can we can provide that evidence. It just takes time and money to do that, but that's certainly what we've we've done in the past by doing sort of accelerated aging and, and benchtop tests where we've 
had devices outside that the have patient. gone outside a patient. Yeah, yeah, where they've they've undergone um, the 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 same sort of rigors yeah. that they would inside a body, yeah. uh, but just over a longer time point. So. Uh, be, I mean, yeah, the, the reality is that you can do as much accelerated aging testing as you want, but until you actually have it in someone for some amount of time, then you, it's too many variables. It's just a guess, right? Yeah, it's too many variables. Yeah. In, in an educated in, guess, yeah. but just yeah, we don't. So where to from here, Nick? Um, where to from for Synchron? I mean, what what do you hope will be your milestones in the next, say, five years? I really want to have uh, completed the pivotal trial and have a device that's out to market. Um, you know, this is idealistic. This is what I'd love to see. I'd love to see the capability of the technology we've got, which includes the software and so forth, allowing people to control many more things uh, and we're learning from the patients what they want to control. I mean, I think that's something I didn't say before. When when we started out, I was like, I know what you want to control. Yeah, you, want to do, you want to do this and this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And it's only with working with them, they're like, you know what, this is really valuable. Yeah. I want to control that thing. Yeah, and you're yeah. like, okay, that makes sense. So, so continually working with 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 patients and, and, and carers and, and loved ones and whatever and, and making sure the system does the things that they, they need it to uh, and and so get a product out to market but also sort of in the background making sure that we continue to make that product better but let's look at other markets. Like there's there's evidence that you can, you know, like we're talking about with Parkinson's, you can put in stimulation and, and stop tremors. Uh, epilepsy is becoming a field where, you can start recording seizures or the occurrence of seizures and putting stimulation in, uh, putting electricity back in to stop them. Uh, these parts of the brain we can we can access through different blood vessels, um, and we don't need to do the invasive surgery. So I think there's, you know, there is a field. There is a lot of different pathways that that Synchron can can travel, and a lot of different neurological conditions that we might be able to uh, to treat or you know people we might be able to help. And I'd I'd love to see us expanding into those as well. How much influence? Do investors have on the way you run the business? Uh, I think it depends on the ones you get, and we were very careful to make sure that we got ones that uh, you know, had our same ethical, and moral standard, and wanted to join us uh, in the in the mission and, and vision that we had to start with. And so, I think it depends. I, I've heard horror stories where yeah, investors come in and just completely change what you're doing. Yeah. We we haven't had that. Ours have been extremely supportive. Um, we found ones that you know. Can certainly provide us a lot more uh, benefit than than just the money, which obviously needed. But that you know they come with experience and and people that we need and networks and and other ideas. And so we've we've been lucky in that regard that that the investors have been very good to us and uh, and are really part of the team and and want to achieve the same goals that we do. Is there enough um, bench strength or depth in the Australian investor market for your sort of business? Uh, I hope it's changing. Um, certainly the investment we've got came from the US uh, back in the day. We're talking 10 years ago, there wasn't a lot of, you know, I remember some of the early calls where they, the investors we were talking to for, for various different reasons, right? But one of the things that stood out was, you know, we need a return in seven years. Yeah. It's like, okay, you're never going to get that. We need a liquidity event. Yeah. We want an event in yeah. seven years where and we can maybe get our money back or talk about it. And if you're doing a class three medical product, for particularly for a group of guys like us who weren't looking to sell, we wanted to just go the whole way. We believe in what we're doing and we yeah. want to get there. Uh, telling Someone telling us that, you know, we've only got seven years, like, it, you know, it's impossible. Like yeah. the, the FDA tests alone require sort of somewhat more than that. So. So I think uh, hopefully that attitude's changed from from when we were when we were looking around in Australia. I think it has, um, 
but certainly you know the the interest in all the technology and the uh, you know the amazing inventions that are coming out of Australia and the ability to do the preclinical and, and clinical trials is all there. And I think we just need to get uh, some of the investors to appreciate the difficulty and the time as particularly medical uh, devices and say, you know, what? it's going to take 10 years, 15 years. Fine. I'm there to back you. I'll, I'll keep being there. Let's go. Let's do it. Um, Cause otherwise a lot of good stuff might go overseas or not happen at all. And Which is a bit both of worry. It'd be a shame. It, it, that's worry. I don't like that. I don't like that thought. And I think probably the answer to that question that, well, the answer to that issue is for the um, venture capitalists who raise the money, when they raise the money, they've got to, uh, they've got to extend their own, in their mandate, they've got to extend their own period. So, because most of the time they raise the money from the you know wealthy families or wherever they're mm. raising the money from, and they say, in seven years, whatever we invest in, we'll create a liquidity event, and you'll get your money back, or we the fund will get the yeah. money back, and we'll do distribution or redemption or whatever the case may be. So, when they raise the money, they should be saying, we're going to specifically look at things like you're doing and others. Mm. And this is a fifteen-year horizon. Yeah, and so, maybe you can have both, right? Um, yeah. I you know I haven't. That's haven't true. sat on the other side of the bench, um, so I don't know what pressure they're getting, but uh, maybe you can have both. Maybe you can have some short-term, like an app, which doesn't take a huge amount of uh, time and cost to get up and running uh, and marry that with some like, oh, this this medical device is going to take ages, but let's do, let's, yeah, yeah. let's spread it out a little bit and have a, have a few different horses. That's interesting because um, I, I think, to answer my own question, I don't think the mandates have gone beyond seven years. Seven years is still the sort of magic number of mm. big VCs here. And that's because that's what they promised their investors. So it might be more not the venture capitalist companies, but it more might be an issue for investors in Australia. The people put the money into these, like put the money into the fund. Mm. We might be a little bit too short term here in Australia. And I reckon if someone like you got up there and told them the story and you said, "Listen, you know, specifically for medical devices, for example, in this in one category, medical devices, fifteen years is a better horizon, but there's probably a, a much bigger outcome." If it's if successful, yeah, and I, look, I certainly hope to get back here and uh, uh, and tell you in well, ideally five years, and say, okay, mum and dad out there, like you know, uh, we went from a value of this to a value of this. It took fifteen years, um, but I'm evidence that it can work. So you know, have a little bit more patience, uh, and you know, I'd love to be able to tell that story in in a few years' time. Well, Nicholas, I'll be um, co-founder of Synchron. Thanks very much for coming. I. This stuff I could talk to you for hours about. I <laughs> find it, I quite, it's quite fascinating. Um, and um, I'm just glad that someone from Australia, that is you, is um, and your co-founders are putting a stamp in relation to these developments on the rest of the world. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me here. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Mentor with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistance, Simon McDermott. This is a mentored podcast.